Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetsluth. Today, it is the morning of Saturday, June 19th in Seoul, but still the evening of Friday, June 18th in New York, where I'm joined via Zoom by today's guest, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Morrow, to talk about his time in the Joint Security Area. Before we do that, I'd like to remind you all, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and please share this podcast with everyone you know and four people you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them by email to podcast at nknews.org. All right, so to introduce my guest today more properly, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Morrow was commander of the United Nations Security Battalion from June 2018 to June 2020. He was the host of President Trump when the famous Panmunjom sudden meeting instigated by tweet took place. Colonel Morrow is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, Boston College, and the University of Chicago, where he is currently a PhD candidate in political science. Welcome on the show, Colonel Morrow. Thanks, Jacko. It's really nice to be here with you today. I appreciate this opportunity. It's, uh, it's great to be talking to you. You've got some unique experiences and stories to tell, so we'll get straight into it. Uh, what is the United Nations Security Battalion Joint Security Area? What does it do and where exactly is it located? Yeah, so to, to start with the basics, uh, first, I just need to say that the, the things that I say here today are, are my own personal experiences and opinions and don't necessarily reflect any position of the U.S. government or the U.S. Army. So the UNCSB uh, is a security battalion originally stood up to help protect and facilitate the peace talks in Panmunjom, actually during the war uh, in 1952. Uh, It's located in the village of Panmunjom, right on the border. And the the camp actually today actually crosses over the border, the joint security area, half on the North Korean side of the demilitarized zone and half on the the Republic of Korea side of the demilitarized zone and, and overseen by United Nations Command. The, the troops that are there, they protect talks. They keep a place open and safe for when, whenever United Nations Command wants to have engagements with the North Korean side. And they've been doing this continuously since 1952, even, even when there hasn't been much indication of potential talks. Mm. The, the JSA has always been secured and ready to have talks any hour of any day. Is it a, a combined force of uh, rock and U.S. infantrymen? It is. It's a fully combined force, commanded right now by a a U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel, uh, but the Deputy Commander is a Republic of Korea Lieutenant Colonel. It's a fantastic partnership to have both armies working together every day on that mission. Uh, Now, my extensive research in Wikipedia, uh, the source of all good things, told me that a battalion in an army can be anywhere between 300 and 1,000 men in size. That's quite a range. Roughly how big is the UNCSB? Yeah, so battalions do range uh, widely in size. Uh, while, while I won't go into exact specifics of numbers, I, I can't tell you that it's to the higher end of that number. Okay. And is it based at Camp Boniface? It is, yeah. Camp Boniface, uh, just south of the demilitarized zone in the Republic of Korea. Mm. Now, that was named after one of the two uh, American uh, officers who was killed in the, uh, the axe murder incident of 1976. Were they members of the UNCSB? Yes, at the time, uh, Captain Arthur Boniface uh, was a company commander in the UNCSB. Uh, ah. Sadly, was was on about his third to last day 
serving oh, on the God. Korean Peninsula, uh, had his flight booked uh, to come home to his wife and kids who were actually assigned uh, at West Point. Uh, so it was, it was pretty tragic, although it was, uh, I had the honor on Memorial Day here just a few weeks ago to, to visit mm. his gravesite and pay respects on behalf of all the troops that have served there. He's buried here at West Point. Wow. Uh, is is the UNCSB JSA the people who are supposed to charge into the JSA within two minutes at the first sign of trouble? Yeah, the, the security battalion provides all of the security for the joint security area. So whatever security that could be needed in there, we provide. Right, okay. So when there was that uh, Soviet defector in 1984 in the Battle of the Sunken Garden, that was uh, between North Koreans and, and the uh, security battalion? Absolutely. Yeah, that, yep. that was a, a fight between both U.S. and ROC soldiers uh, mm -hmm. from, from the south side, uh, United Nations Command, and then North Korean soldiers on the north side. That, that firefight happened uh, on the south side after the defector had sprinted across. Right. I heard he might still be alive in the United States. I'd love to have had him on the podcast. Have you ever uh, heard, it, <laughs> heard whether he's still with us? So, so he's no longer with us. He only recently oh. died, though. He had a very long career as a journalist uh, in Los Angeles. Gosh, well, glad to hear that, but sorry to hear yeah. that he's no longer with us. Uh, now, how closely did you, as UN Security Commander, work together with United Nations Command Chief of Staff? Uh, every day. Uh, at the time when I first got there and during a lot of the interaction, uh, it was Major General, now Lieutenant General Mike Minahan, United States Air Force. Uh, mm. And, and that, that's who a lot of my day-to-day -day direction came from. The security battalion works directly for the UNC commander, uh, but the, the commander has a lot, of, a lot of responsibilities. So we would work through the UNC chief of staff. Right. Does that make him effectively your boss? Yeah, I, I took my direction from, from the UNC Chief of Staff and the J3, the Director of Operations, on behalf of the commander. All right. Now, during your time in the JSA, to what extent was informal contact on a human level possible with your counterparts on the northern side of the line? So when I first showed up uh, in June of 2018, it was, it was nearly impossible. Uh, the 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 meeting between uh, President Moon and Chairman Kim had happened in April, uh, very successful. Uh, UNC worked closely with the ROC government uh, and the DPRK government to make sure that that first meeting happened uh, there in April of 2018. But as far as the security battalions from the North and South side interacting much, it wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really uh, after the, the summer summits between President Trump and Chairman Kim, and then the comprehensive military agreement in September of 2018, when routine interaction really started in the JSA. And when it did start, uh, at first it was, you know, contact on a human level, probably not the right phrase because everything felt very scripted and very cold, uh, mm -hmm. almost as if we were only meeting to go over a checklist and then to report back to our higher headquarters. Uh, however, as those meetings happened and became more frequent and became longer then you know human level contact is exactly the right thing because uh, we just started sharing small anecdotes talking about family uh, talking about their time at the Kim Il-sung military academy and their training uh, about their hopes about their thoughts about their their regime uh, it actually was shocking to me uh, how much they were willing to discuss Right. Um, and, and that's, uh, I guess, indicative of, of human nature and psychology, isn't it? That 
you can't be meeting regularly on a day-to-day basis uh, and not you know ultimately let your guard down at some point yeah i think that that's true i would say that the the north korean soldiers were extraordinarily professional and disciplined but the, mm-hmm. the more we got to know each other the more they were willing to to kind of have an easy laugh or even wave uh when we'd be up in the joint security area some something that never happened in my first six months there uh, but yeah. after that interaction you'd get a nod an occasional smile and you just knew that you had a connection even though you know we also as professional soldiers knew that it could it could go either way and it and at any time we had to be ready to fight and win but yeah. that the door was open to have a conversation and to and to keep him and john frankly very peaceful okay now we'll come back later on to that uh, that period of time a bit later but i want to talk about your uh, piece that you published in uh, the summer of last year so probably just around the time that you uh, you left the jsa called uh, bridges at panmunjom and it was published in the wilson quarterly from the uh, wilson center people can find it online i think we'll put a link in the show notes and you wrote about your experience working there at the jsa for two years uh, why did you choose to focus on bridges when you wrote this piece? Well, I, I think that uh, oftentimes you'll think of a theme and then start to write, but that's not what happened in this case. I, I just started writing down uh, experiences and, and thoughts from my time in command. Uh, I wrote this really in my last month in Korea and then my first mm. month back stateside. Uh, and as I wrote, I started to realize the theme was just bringing itself out. Uh, and mm-hmm. this idea of of both physical bridges and symbolic bridges, you know, the bridges in Daesong Dong, the bridge across mm-hmm. the Imjin River, and then, of course, the the famous Bridge of No Return, where our Boniface mm-hmm. and Mark Barrett lost their lives. But then the bridges that United Nations Command provides, that UNCMAC provides with the daily phone line, the bridges between U.S. and Korea, South Korean soldiers in the battalion. Uh, it, it's just the JSA provides an opportunity to interact. And, mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, the, the notion of a bridge just evolved naturally out of what, what's already there. That's very interesting. I've never heard it described that way, but it is, it, it's certainly true that there are many physical and literal bridges in and around and on the way to and from the JSA, but also, yeah, the JSA itself is like a metaphorical bridge. Yes, absolutely. Now, you also, you write about uh, two Korean civilian bridges, one in North Korea, one in South Korea, Daesongdong and Kijongdong, uh, and that very small geographical space that separates them. And that's a, a very human story about the division of the two Koreas writ small. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so when, when the armistice was originally signed, there was an idea that there would be no people really living in the DMZ, but both sides would, would maintain a village. Uh, and mm. I think the idea, so the legend goes, is that the purpose was that when peace finally happened, those those villages would unite and then unification would kind of expand from there, whether mm. that was, you know, the intent of the, you know, the original writers of the documents. I, I, I don't know, but it it is a, it makes for a good story. What I do know is that, you know, there are people that were still living in the village right now uh, who had relatives that were put onto the other side of the line and mm. did not really speak or interact with each other you know, since, since the end of the war. Uh, so families were divided in that village. Uh, our battalion has daily interaction with the village. Uh, first, from a security perspective, it's, it's critical just to make sure that, that those farmers are safe, especially during more tense times over the course of history. We're, we're focused a lot in this podcast on, on a, a very hopeful time of 2018 yeah. through 2020, but, you know, we can't forget that farmers had been abducted uh, by, by the North Korean military. 
uh, in the past, there was, there was always a very real danger of conflict breaking out there near the villages to the point that at some point the North Koreans uh, didn't really even have it as a fully working village. It became known to many as propaganda village um, because it was, it was built beautifully, uh, well-painted, well-maintained. Uh, they would bring in farmers. They would sometimes bring in you know, North Korean citizens to uh, almost like a, a stage, mm -hmm. uh, like a Hollywood set. Uh, and they would also play a lot of their propaganda music over to the villagers of, of Daesongdong. But, you know, it, it plays a critical role. It's, it's not only symbolic, but it's, a, it's an active farm. They have rice and they make honey and maintain bees. And in 2018, when President Moon and Chairman Kim met, it was the children of Daesongdong that presented the flowers uh, mm. because the, the idea is that someday those children will, will be able to be part of a unified Korea. Right. Does it ever happen that uh, mines from the north end up uh, washing into the, the farmers' fields at Taesongdong? Uh, absolutely. So, as you know, there are millions of mines remaining all across the DMZ, despite uh, great efforts uh, by international organizations, by the governments to try to do some mine clearing operations. Mm. Uh, but there will routinely be mines that will, after the rainy season or after uh, typhoons, will move into the farmland. Uh, sometimes there's some that just have been buried so far underground uh, over the years that they just come up from inside the ground. Uh, we've wow. been very fortunate not to have uh, an accident, yeah. uh, but a friend of mine who served in the JSA since 2015 said that one time a large piece of ordinance, not even just a landmine, uh, came up in a farmer as a farmer was tilling and yeah. he just put it put it in his tractor and, and brought it and called the U.S. military who came and got rid of it for him. Gosh, uh, years ago when I uh, uh, I worked in the tourism industry, my uh, direct boss was a, a former uh, sergeant major from the uh, the command security battalion and he talked about uh, lots of three-legged deer running through the demilitarized zone. I don't know if that's a legend or if that's true. Did you ever see any of those? So I never did see a three-legged deer, but I absolutely can tell you that, uh, you know, a, mi a mine would be detonated and we would detect that and there was no people anywhere near it. So mm. the, the likelihood is that it was set off by a boar or a deer or some other type oh, yeah. of animal. Uh, now, earlier we we mentioned the, uh, the axe murders incident of... Uh, August 18th, 1976. Uh, how did that change the way that things worked in the JSA? Yeah, so that's an important question because prior to the August 18th, 1976, the security battalions had freedom of movement to the north side of the military demarcation line, which is often referred to by many as the border, even though mm -hmm. technically isn't the border, but it's the, it's the dead center of the DMZ. Uh, so there's a, a northern side and a southern side of the MDL. Prior to 1976, uh, the, the security battalions of United Nations Command and of the North Koreans would had freedom to move within the JSA across both sides of the MDL. So there was frequent interaction. Sometimes it wasn't bad. Most of the times it was. But when it was, it, you know, the, the idea wasn't that people were going to get killed. It was mm. uh, a lot more innocent, it's violent, but innocent. Uh, you know, fist fights, people getting beat up people are actually getting severely injured in those fights, but, but it never rose to the way it did on August 18th, 1976, when they killed mm. two of our troops. Uh, after that, the way it changed is that the MDL, the military demarcation line became something that could not be crossed. So within the JSA, you could 
move around freely on the south side for us, but you could not cross that line into the north side. And when you had meetings, you would sit on your side of the MDL and they would sit on their side of the MDL. Even within the same building? Even in the same building, yeah, you, you would not cross the border. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what uh, prompted the uh, North Koreans to build uh, a, an extra bridge, a bridge of their own, right? So that they could access the JSA from their side without uh, crossing over inadvertently into the southern side. Yeah, so yeah, so that's good history and also another another bridge, another physical bridge that the North Koreans used to use the bridge, the famous bridge of no return, mm. which got its name during the Korean War because of the prisoner exchanges. Uh, but the North Koreans would use that bridge to get into the JSA up until 1976. But when we implemented the MDL rule, there was no way for them to cross uh, into the, the JSA. So over the span of about four days, they installed another bridge, which is now the bridge that they use to mm -hmm. get in and out. Uh, and I think we'll talk about this more later, but it, that bridge was made famous when Sergeant Ochong Song uh, yeah. defected in 2017. Uh, now, what's the role of UNCMAC and how important was it that UNCMAC meetings continued uh, at least until 2013, even when there was no diplomatic contact between the leadership of uh, North Korea and the US or North Korea and South Korea? Yeah, so UNCMAC's role is critical. Uh, they make sure that the armistice is being enforced. They're, they certainly are part of United Nations command, but they, they function to make sure that you know, both sides are following the rules of the armistice agreement. Uh, and so they also function to pass messages uh, to the North Koreans. And the ability to have someone who is ready to answer that phone who checks the phone line twice a day, every single day, 365 days a year, even, even when no one's answering, mm. they're always there. You know, it's kind of like in those commercials or when people talk about, you know, their parents will, will keep a light on for you. That's what right. UNCMAC does. And in addition to their role of providing armistice oversight and armistice education, they are the ones that constantly keep that, that contact alive and available uh, for when, Diplomats, generals uh, need to have a conversation in Panmunjom. Okay, and now let's uh, let's talk about the uh, dramatic defection of Ochong Song that uh, happened in November 2017, a little bit before your time, uh, and when uh, probably one of the more recent cases when the uh, UN uh, CSB was in the news. So we had a, a North Korean soldier. I think he was a private, perhaps uh, Ochong Song. He was trying to escape from North Korea over the border, uh, or over the uh, the military demarcation line, and he was shot at by his former comrades 27 times, five of them hitting their mark. Uh, what impact did that have uh, on the way that things were run in the JSA? Yeah, so that was, you know, your listeners can go on YouTube and and watch the entire video of this incident. It's it's really amazing to watch it start to finish as Sarno Chong Song approaches uh, as the North Koreans kind of figure out something's wrong, but aren't really sure defections in progress. And, and I, I encourage your listeners to watch that video uh, mm. to give them an understanding. I think the most important impact from that day it isn't what we did in the JSA, but it's what, what we didn't do. And as you mentioned, I was not in charge. Um, my predecessor was in charge. And they have very, very clear rules of engagement in the joint security area. And if the North Koreans are not engaging them or we are not protecting one of our visitors to the joint security area, we should not be engaging. And so the soldiers that day, 
uh, I think received some criticism perhaps in the press, but they did exactly what they are trained to do and what they're ready to do. And when you look at the timeline, November, 2017, there was weapon, there's currently, you know, the JSA has been cleared of weapons since mm. the fall of 2018, but in November, 2017, the JSA had plenty of weapons uh, up there. And as the North Koreans chased that one soldier, had our team shot and killed five or six North Korean soldiers. It's a little bit of a revisionist history, but one has to wonder, mm-hmm. does Chairman Kim give his his speech on New Year's Day 2018? Does does the Olympics happen? I, I just I really think that the restraint shown by the the UNC soldiers uh, really was a testament to their training and their capabilities. And and that is uh, as you say that's completely in uh, in accordance with the rules of engagement that they've been trained to, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. De- de-escalation is, is every soldier in the U.S. military and the United States Nations Command has the right to protect themselves. But if there's an opportunity to de-escalate, then then that's what they take. And yeah, as you point out, it was only a short six weeks after that dramatic defection that. Uh, Chairman Kim Jong-un gave his New Year's speech that led to the the time of detente that was occurring around the period that you were there. It's such a dramatic turnaround. What's your gut feeling on why Kim chose to make that change? Is it because he felt threatened by President Trump's warning of fire and fury, or is it simply because he felt that he was ready to talk? You know, it would be hard for me to to guess at at what Chairman Kim Jong-un was thinking. You know, a lot of professionals try to do that and, and have mm. yet to probably be very successful. All I can say is that in the fall of 2017, you know, the, the world was, you know, potentially concerned that we were on the brink of war and, and we certainly were too uh, on the Korean Peninsula. And, you know, a few weeks after that, the temperature went down. His, his willingness to do that opened a door and why he chose to do that, I don't know, mm-hmm. but he was ready to open the door and our president was ready to to entertain that, and so was President Moon. And so, frankly, uh, I think it was a perfect storm uh, in a good sense. It, it was the right yeah. time for everyone to to try to tone down the temperature. And when did you arrive in South Korea? I showed up in May of 2018. Okay, all right. So you were there a little while before you took over command at the Security Battalion. Yeah, just for a few weeks, two weeks before I took command, two or three weeks. Okay, so when you took command, uh, was that before or after the Singapore summit and declaration between President Trump and Chairman Kim? It was just before the Singapore summit. Wow. Uh, yeah. That, what was the atmosphere like? Was it tense? Was it optimistic? I think that uh, the the atmosphere was optimistic at this time, June of 2018. R- regardless of the outcome of the talks, the fact that the talks were happening, I, I think was better than than threats, at least from the perspective of a United States citizen. You know, anytime you can solve these things through diplomacy is good. So oh, sure. I, I think that those on the Korean Peninsula were optimistic. And, and definitely, definitely those in the military service were optimistic that that this potentially could lead to better things. Now, you, you make the interesting point just now that whenever conflict can be raised by diplomacy, that's a good thing. And it may surprise our listeners to hear that actually uh, from a military man such as yourself, to what degree did you uh, coordinate with or talk with uh, people, say, uh, in the State Department? So the, the coordination between the Department of State, the U.S. Embassy in South Korea and United Nations Command is, is fantastic. Uh, I, I've spent tw- over 20 years now in the military, and uh, that it, it was probably the best I've seen um, mm. between 
that's embassy in Seoul and General Brooks and then General Abrams. Well, we were lucky enough to have General Brooks uh, on the podcast uh, some time ago. He was uh, he was a great guest. To, so, to what extent would you say then that there is there's a real trust uh, on the military side in the work of diplomacy? I, I think in the U.S. military, we have, we have tremendous confidence in our diplomats. Uh, you know, it, we we support and defend the Constitution. That's what our oath is to, regardless mm. of, of who is the president or who controls Congress. We are going to we're going to follow our elected and appointed leaders. And uh, I, I think I've been in the military during a, a period where you know we believe that they can enforce you know what they want to do through diplomacy, mm-hmm. but we are always prepared to back them up should they call on us. Uh, to use the military. Now, shortly after the uh, the Singapore summit on July 12th, 2018, an unusual phone call happened uh, after a long period of silence. Tell us about that. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. It was a <laughs> it was a very unique day. We were sitting in the joint security area, uh, preparing to go to a face to face encounter, but the phone had had not rung in our room in a long time. Uh, in years, we had been making our daily calls. This is the hotline to the other side yeah, of the JSA, right? This is UncMac's hotline, mm-hmm. uh, and UncMac never fails to make the call, but just there wasn't really a quality response. And we, we were in there in the building, next, literally five feet away from the phone on July 12, 2018, when the phone just started ringing, and nobody in the room had ever heard that phone ring before. Uh, it, it was almost like in a horror movie. Everyone looked at each other and looked at the phone. Uh, but then the the UNCMAC joint duty officer on duty, she she picked up the phone and answered it, and we used our translator to take the message, and it was just like that. Re- reopened the daily discussions uh, between UNCMAC and UNC and the North Koreans. Can you remember roughly how long those calls hadn't been going on for? I don't know off the top of my head. That's a fact that I I knew cold just just about a year ago but i i I would say it was about four or five years uh that they had not called us that's quite a period of time now for the uh the jsa dmz geeks among us uh is it publicly known is it allowed to be publicly known in which building that phone is located uh yeah yes that's been reported on in open source Mm -hmm. uh the the joint duty office is is the building right there up on the border oh yes I think that's a two-story structure, am I right? Yes. Yep, okay. Then those calls, did they begin to happen twice daily again? Was that the start of something beautiful? <laughs> uh, you know, something beautiful, maybe a strong term, mm. uh, but it, it really reinforced the, the optimistic nature of the summer of, of, of 2018. Yeah. Part of these calls had to do with starting to do the return of remains that United Nations Command was mm. able to execute uh, after the president Trump and Chairman Kim ag- agreed to that in their summit. Uh, it was one of the one of the tangible outcomes of that summit was bringing home American soldiers. And and to this day, we are still seeing stories in the American news of remains identified from from that transfer mm. uh, are being returned home to family members now, uh, seventy years later. Now, a couple of months after the Singapore summit in September twenty eighteen. President Moon and Chairman Kim signed the Bilateral Comprehensive Military Agreement, or CMA. Uh, There's a little technicality there because it's the armistice agreement that is the supremely legally binding document that 
governs the whole of the demilitarized zone and the joint security area. Uh, did the CMA align with that military armistice agreement? Yeah, for the most part, the, the comprehensive military agreement supported the goals of the armistice. And, and I'm fairly certain that's why United Nations Command uh, was in favor of, of helping enforce those agreements that President Moon and Chairman Kim had agreed to. Uh, of course, the armistice agreement is the law of the land within the DMZ, um, but anytime uh, something happens that can advance the causes of the armistice agreement, uh, that's a good thing. And, mm -hmm. and UNC was supportive of, of almost all of the, the pillars of the, of the comprehensive military agreement to the degree that they advanced the goals of the armistice. And am I right in understanding that the armistice agreement, the only thing that could do away with that would be basically a, a peace treaty? I don't know. There, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm sure that there are different ways out, but perhaps it's a peace treaty. I, I really don't have the legal answer for you on on, on right. all the different ways that the armistice could could end. Yeah, I shouldn't have said the only thing. That, I, I guess it's probably uh, one of several options. Uh, but the, right. the most, the most immediate one that pops up in mind is uh, is a peace treaty that would supersede the armistice agreement, making it no longer necessary. I believe that that's true. But there may be other options that we we haven't thought of or heard of yet. Yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, certainly not for me to yeah. to opine on. Right. Yeah. There was a lot of talk about that in the last year of. Uh, of, of Donald Trump there about what if we, you know, sign an end of war declaration and things. And of course, that never happened. So it, it's all speculative at this point. Right. Now, in late uh, 2018, after the signing of that CMA, there was, uh, you know, some great news footage, the removal of guard posts and landmines, uh, and the security battalion that you were in command of was intimately involved in that process. Tell us a little bit about how that went. So when, when the CMA was signed, UNC, was uh, asked to have a team sit in what was called the trilateral negotiations. Mm. And so those were led by UNC through UNCMAC. Uh, so the UNCMAC secretary was the leader of the South Side team. Uh, I was fortunate that the, that the UNC commander uh, put me on that team. And then we also had an international officer uh, just to represent uh, the power of having multiple sending states with UNC. Right. Uh, just for our listeners there, there are, is it 16? Am I right? Or 14? Well, roughly 16 sending states? Uh, I think it's 17, 17 perhaps, right. and then the host nation. Okay. And so ha having a, an international officer, I think, was important for UNC. And having the UNCMAC secretary uh, as the lead was also critical. Uh, having the UNCSB JSA commander myself, uh, I think, was, was unique, something that in the past, our role had been purely securing, mm. uh, but since we were going to be the ones implementing all of the JSA portions of the CMA, I think it was helpful that I was able to be in the room, and I'm grateful that the commander trusted me to be in that process. Right, that's interesting, because normally you're there uh, to provide security for the talks, but now here you are, you're actually part of the talks. Correct, yes. Now, now in the, in the talks themselves, the, the UNCMAC secretary uh, was, was the leader of those talks and, and mm -hmm. did the talking. But in the preparation, uh, in the room at the table, the security battalion was always there. And uh, I was just grateful that the secretary uh, and, of course, UNC commander valued our input in that process. Yeah. Were there obstacles to implementing the CMA? Negotiations are always difficult. Um, mm. But I would, I would say that we were able to implement almost all of it 
you know, only a few provisions that never were fully implemented dealing with a, like a freedom of movement on both sides and the, mm. the tours being able to move on both sides. But as far as the, the stuff that should have been the hard stuff, uh, you know, reducing the security posture, pulling the weapons out of a place that was one of the most weaponized and secured places on earth. Yeah. You know, the, the sharing with the North Koreans, uh, and showing them our side and them inviting us to their side and letting mm. us inspect and walk around. Uh, it was a degree of openness that was unprecedented. And so were there obstacles? Yes. Uh, you know, negotiations are always difficult, but we were able to work through it. And in the process, uh, I think we were able to have a lot of that human interaction that we talked about earlier. Um, yeah. the, the initial meetings, extraordinarily scripted. Um, but by the end, there was a lot more ability to have the negotiations and, and to to come to outcomes that were beneficial to both sides. And that work of uh, of actually visiting and inspecting and verifying uh, the demilitarization on both sides of the JSA that's that's quite remarkable. I mean, here you are, you're actually on the northern side looking at uh, a North Korean guard post and and checking things. That's fascinating. Uh, did you see any KPA underground tunnels? We did, absolutely. Now, not in the sense that your listeners may be thinking of that they could move an entire army. Right, these are not infiltration tunnels, are they? No, no, not the kind you would see on some of the other UNCMAC, UNC orientation sites. Yeah. Uh, but definitely, definitely underground tunnels uh, for moving between buildings. They allowed us into them. Uh, and in fact, they had you know, covered some up with plaster, uh, mm. which seemed like they'd done it fairly recently, but they were extraordinarily open, pointing those out to us, uh, and even being willing to to take down some of those plast plaster coverings if we wanted to examine even further underground. Right, and was it the intent uh, the intention of the CMA that these no longer be used? Is that what it was about? Uh, it never specifically said anything about the tunnels. Uh, okay. I mean, listeners can look at at what was specified in the CMA. It's a public document, mm. but the the intent really was just that there wouldn't be activity that could be perceived as threatening and yep. so as the security battalion commander you know if i saw them moving boxes under there then that would probably be reason for concern but right we saw unarmed guards just moving between posts then mm. uh i think that that would be well within the intent of the cma uh, now in amongst the uh you know the conversations and the, the small talk were there also uh, exchanges of uh, you know cigarettes or gum or drinks or things like that yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I'm, I remain certain that that's one of the original things that helped break the ice uh, mm. was just the ability to take a smoke break. Now, I, I am not a smoker, but ah. the first time I was on the North Korean side and, and they offered me a cigarette, I, I accepted just having been around the world enough. I know, you know, a break over a cigarette is an yeah. opportunity to, to talk about something other than work. And, and so absolutely, uh, they shared with us and, and we shared with them. Do you know if it was the uh, 727 brand preferred by Kim Jong-un? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I actually have a box at my house. Ah. I, could, I could probably shoot you a note after and let you know if that's what it was. Yeah, I, I'm, I do actually have a, a small collection here of uh, uh, North Korean cigarettes. Oh, wow. Uh, of d different brands and and, uh, and covers and things. And I, I put some photos of that up on uh, on Twitter. So I'm always curious to see more of them. 
Yeah, I'll let you. I'll let you know what they what they offered us. Uh, they they were always interested to know if we had Marlboro Red. So they definitely. Uh, some some Western ideas and brands had somehow made it over there because that's what they were asking for. Uh, so they preferred their. Uh, I mean, they, they like Marlboro Reds for the the strength or the flavor. Perhaps okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure, but interesting. That, that's what they were asking for. Uh, did you feel that there was a, a trust, not just a camaraderie, but a real trust between the two sides in doing these uh, the work of these inspections? Yeah. So, Jacko, that's a that's a great question. When you're in a profession like ours, everything is a risk. And so, did I trust everything that they were saying? Usually, I didn't have a big reason to doubt. When you talk about intentions, that's another thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't always know if what they were telling me about why they were doing things was exactly correct. Uh, but, but in order to make something like this work, you know, the UNC commander early on, General Abrams told me, commander to commander interaction is what's going to keep this place, you know, more safe. Mm. If, if you and the guy on the other side who's in charge of those troops over there can interact, then if something happens, at least you guys know each other. And, you know, I, honestly, did I trust him? Well, I, was, I trusted him enough that I was willing to take risks. And so, so I would say that, that in the fall of 2018 and early 2019, some degree of trust was established. And, it, and if we didn't have that trust, we probably couldn't have accomplished what we did. Uh, and likewise, if they didn't have a little bit of trust, probably couldn't have accomplished what they did. So yes, yeah. we were always ready to verify and we were always ready for that trust to be broken and to fight and to win, mm -hmm. but we were willing to take risks. So I would say that that's an indicator of some level of trust. You, uh, you visited the, uh, the 72 hour bridge. That's the one that the North Koreans built into their side of the, uh, the JSA after the ax murder incident. Uh, and you, you went to the site of the poplar tree that had been the focal focal point, or at least the, uh, the 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 spark that started off the uh, the incident in 1976. Uh, what did the uh, Korean People's Army soldiers say uh, when you showed them that the memorial plaque? Yeah, so what we were doing at that point was was looking at a lot of plaques uh, and and signs and and all sorts of things in the JSA to figure out what message it conveyed, not just internally. So. I'm sorry, not only what did our plaques convey to a UNC Republic of Korea audience, but what message would they convey if we in fact eventually had North Korean tourists coming mm. to the south side of the JSA. And as that Korean colonel, that North Korean colonel came down and read the plaque honoring Art Boniface and Mark Barrett, mm. he said to me and, and very casually, but he said, you know, I don't know that we need to, to tell this story because this is a story of violence and it's a story of fighting mm. and there was a, there was a lot of things we were willing to negotiate on but that was not one of them mm. and and i said respectfully sir we are not going to move this monument or change this monument there's some things that we have to remember just so we don't go back to the past and he thought about it for a minute and he looked at me and he said well i think you're right and maybe this should stay and uh, it was not what I expected and probably not what our listeners here or your listeners yeah. would have expected, but they, they agreed. You know, some of the things we did change, there was a plaque that whenever it had been put up 30 or 40 years ago, you know, used a term about the North Koreans that 
wasn't awful, but probably didn't cast them in a great light. And, mm. and they simply said, are, are you willing to just change the, this wording? Yeah. And we thought that was a fair and reasonable request. We're a professional army and, you know, probably shouldn't have had that, that on there in the first place. So we fixed that after they asked. Right. And so that was, was that a, uh, I mean, you may not know this, but was, was that a North Korean translator who was picking up, you know, some of the wording and then feeding it back to, to their side and saying, oh, this looks inappropriate or this looks un, unkind or something like that? Uh, not necessarily, because they they always did have a translator, but all of our plaques in Panmunjom are written in both English and uh, Hangul, um, right. because it's a combined battalion. So they would yep. just read the Hangul. Uh, in, in fact, what, what we learned is that the, the derogatory term was not in the English translation, but oh. it was present in Hangul. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and our, our translator confirmed that for us and said, yeah, you know, they actually have a fair point there. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I do wonder sometimes how... Uh, the North Korean leadership of today looks back on the 1976 axe murder incident and you know whether that's something that uh, they prefer to uh, to gloss over or whether that's something that's still a moment of pride for them it, it's it, you know we we may never know until the books are opened but you know it's, right. it's something to wonder about yeah definitely curious about that now do you look back on what happened in that period at the end of of 2018 as being uh, important mainly on a symbolic level or is it something that's also important on a practical level? I think both and I think both are important. I think from a practical level what we were able to achieve in Panmunjom brought the temperature down and made Panmunjom more not open because it was always open but mm. uh, a more likely place to have a conversation right so so when there's guns and tension and soldiers facing off, it, it doesn't really lend itself to, to be a place of diplomacy. Uh, but, when, but when the guns are pulled back, when the soldiers uh, can have a, a civil interaction, uh, and don't get me wrong, right? It's, it's not all you know, best friends up there. It's not like that sure. at all. Uh, but it's just it's, it's professional and it, was, it just created opportunities, I think, that um, not necessarily opportunities for us at the tactical level, but just chances for our general officers, for UNC, for the rock government, you know, and ultimately for the president to use that as a place to have a conversation. And, and then, of course, so, so that's the practical answer. The symbolic answer is that if, if we were able to do it in this small place, why, why can't we do it in other ways yeah. and at, on a much grander scale? Did it become possible while you were there under the CMA once again, uh, for the first time since the axe murder incident of 1976, for soldiers from both sides to walk around within the, the full perimeter of the JSA, or did they still have to stay on either side of the military demarcation line? Yeah, so that's that's the one part of the CMA that was never fully realized. Mm. The, the freedom of maneuver or freedom of movement on both sides uh, for the opposite side, as well as tours that would cross the border. That, that was not realized. Mm. Now, we spent a lot of time on each other's sides, uh, but it was always planned and escorted, right? right? So we would, we would decide to meet at noon, we would meet at noon, and then they would invite us to step across, and then we would move onto the North Korean side yep. uh, to conduct a CMA activity or something that UNC wanted us to do uh, on the North side. And sometimes those meetings lasted a very long time. I think mm. the longest one I was in was about eight hours. Wow. Toilet breaks allowed? No, there was breaks. There okay. was breaks. <laughs> but, but I guess what I'm saying is that cross 
MDL maneuver yeah. became possible and hadn't really happened amongst the security battalion in a very, very long time. Mm. Uh, but it did not get to the the degree where I could just, whenever I wanted to yeah. walk up to my counterpart's office. Uh, that, was, that was a goal. We wish we had gotten that far, but we didn't. Are you able to say anything about why that was unable to be implemented? Honestly, I, I, I don't fully know the answer to that. Yeah. Okay. It may be at a future date. We'll, uh, things could, you know, if we get back to it again, it could become implemented, I suppose. <laughs> right. Now, there was a, a Christmas dinner that you invited your KPA counterparts to at the end of 2018. Did they come? Yeah. So, so we invited them uh, multiple times uh, through, the, through the hotline, through an actual invitation that we, that we printed and by asking them. Mm -hmm. uh, and they acknowledged it, but never, never RSVP'd in either way. Never said yeah. yes, never said no. In right. fact, the third time I offered, they said, yes, we've heard your invitations already. Uh -huh. So we set up the Christmas meal. In, in which building was that? It was in uh, the blue buildings that straddle uh, that straddle the border. Uh -huh. So so we set it up, and we opened the doors. We opened the curtains, mm. uh, and we stayed there for about an hour. And the North Koreans did not come. They sent mm. uh, some photographers to take some pictures. Yeah. And I thought it was a failure, right? So I mm. thought, all right, I had this idea, and I I really thought maybe they'd come and they didn't. So I, I really felt like. Uh, I had wasted my troops time yeah. and my staff's time and it didn't work. Uh, but then about four days later, a North Korean officer, not my counterpart, but another officer who, who was up there, who was familiar with the invitation said to me through an interpreter, thank you for inviting us to your Christmas. We wanted to come. We just weren't able to. Mm. And in that moment, I realized that the the efforts to, try to set that up we're worth it we're, yeah. we're worthy that, that they appreciated the gesture mm. uh even though they couldn't attend and uh and it wasn't the person the north korean officer who said that to me wasn't from the the north korean security battalion uh, mm. he was one of those officers that would kind of come in and out uh from probably i guess from pyongyang yeah but to me that meant that he was thinking about it right, right? and that and that maybe even they were discussing it and they decided it wasn't a good idea, which I totally understand. Mm -hmm. But it just to me, it showed them our human side, and and it just showed them that we were willing to open the door at any time. Now, then we uh, we flash forward uh, six months to June of 2019. Uh, this is a little, you know, a few months after the the failure of the Hanoi summit, when things looked bleak between Trump and and Kim, and then they they had that sudden meeting, very short meeting in the JSA, and I remember from the news footage, how chaotic things looked with media and Secret Service and Kim's bodyguards and Moon's guards and the three leaders themselves. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was a, a pretty incredible day. It was great to be able to work with the White House and with the Blue House and see the cooperation between the United States and the Republic of Korea. UNC, the staff down at Camp Humphreys did a tremendous job supporting supporting that visit and, and helping us get everything we needed to help it be successful. Mm. The president, two presidents, President Trump and President Moon, spent some time with our troops on the South side. They always appreciate, re regardless of, of anyone's political feelings, just to have two presidents come in and, and spend time with the troops is pretty special for a soldier. Uh, so, so we had that opportunity. And then we brought uh, the presidents uh, up to the, the DMZ uh, for the, for the handshake and mm -hmm. for the meeting, 
the news footage being chaotic, it it definitely was. The behind the scenes piece that I'll tell you mm. is that the media was invited in to take some photographs of the presidents of Chairman Kim and President Trump sitting next to each other. Yeah. And they essentially kind of stampeded wow. towards the door. What you saw was actually some pretty professional cooperation between Blue House security, U.S. Secret Service, and Chairman Kim's bodyguards, mm. not scuffling with each other, mm. but working together to make sure nobody, you know, approached the, the presidents and the chairman too quickly. Right. So it looked like chaos, but the, the interesting takeaway is that it was extraordinarily unique cooperation between three countries mm. uh, to just watch out for their leaders. And and of course we have to remember that you were uh, in charge of you know security on the the southern side of the JSA. So that was all that was your responsibility at the time. Did you have to to talk to, or were you able to talk to uh, your counterpart on the northern side before the meeting to to set things up a little bit? Uh, absolutely, we did. Uh, we had a lot of engagements leading up to the to the meeting. Uh, and when I say a lot, I mean a lot in a thirty hour period. Yeah, I know people like to believe that this was a secret meeting that was planned long in advance, which is completely untrue. Mm. You know, when, when the world found out that this was happening is when we found out uh, <laughs> it was happening, essentially. But in, in those 30 hours leading up to the meeting, uh, we had tremendous uh, engagement with the North Koreans. The White House had the lead, so we ah. were supporting the White House. Right. But the, the meetings between the security both the military and the the professional secret service and the blue house secret service was ongoing all, all the way up into the moments before the meeting. Wow. Okay. So there was no pushing and shoving of each other, uh, of the, the guards or soldiers on either side. It was, as you said, no. working together to keep the media back. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and it's certainly the, the media was invited in. Uh, I think that they were just excited at the opportunity yeah. and we're all trying to get to the front of the rope line so, so they kind of charged mm. and, and uh, it, it wasn't trying to keep the media out. It was really just trying to slow down the pace mm -hmm. and just make sure it was orderly. Uh, you know, when you're, when you have three leaders of three nations in a room. Now, was that planned beforehand that they would go into a room or was it, I mean, how much of that was planned? Uh, how much of that did you know before it happened? That, that's a question I'd prefer not to address, Jack. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, now, it wasn't long afterwards that uh, African swine fever and then uh, COVID-19 swept across the Korean Peninsula. How did those two uh, things affect access to the JSA and interactions within it? Yeah, this was just a, a case of terrible timing. Um, mm -hmm. Swine fever absolutely slowed down what was happening in the JSA and the interactions. And then COVID-19 just brought it all to a screeching halt in, in two directions. First of all, just the interaction between the United Nations Command Security Battalion and the North Korean Security Battalion in Panmunjom. Mm. You know, just nobody was going near the MDL. Nobody was having one-on-one -on -one engagements anymore. And it, and it honestly just, just slowed a lot of the momentum that was built. And then, of course, in the external direction, um, you know, something we haven't talked about, but the JSA is also an important education site for citizens of the Republic of Korea, citizens from around the world, policymakers. And so that entire component of, of helping the world understand 
the, the story of UNC and the Korean Peninsula and the Korean people, uh, that all came to a screeching halt as well. So it was an unfortunate, you know, period of time, you know, in and of itself for, for the devastation that swine fever and COVID have brought to people around the world. But particularly for our mission, we, we were not able to, to do the things beyond securing the JSA, right? Mm. The, the mission to keep Pamela and John open for dipl diplomatic talks never ceased. But the, the side interactions that go with that slow down extraordinarily. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the time period when you commanded the uh, United Nations Command Security Battalion JSA was a, a very unique period in the, the history of the JSA. Uh, one longtime DMZ watcher and friend of this podcast compared the JSA during your period of command with the mythical village of Brigadoni. He said that no one before you experienced the JSA as you did, and no one else will experience it in the same way for another hundred years. Can you share your thoughts on the uniqueness of your command time in that very special place and time in history? Yeah, th thanks for asking that question. I think about this a lot. Mm. And just the role that, that luck and timing play into some of the things that, that I was able to experience with my soldiers, with the UNC team, and with my family. Every JSA commander before me mm. was prepared to do what we did. And the man who took over from me is prepared to do it right now. Mm. Uh, and to have those interactions, to have those engagements and to create security and opportunity for UNC and for, for policymakers. Uh, I just happened to be there when our leaders at the highest level started creating more engagement opportunities, uh, which, which opened the door to the local engagement opportunities in, in Panmunjom. So it, yes, it was unique. And I, and I find myself feeling very fortunate for, for that to have happened, right? Like, yeah. it didn't happen because of me. I just was in a place where I could experience something pretty special. Uh, and, and I think that, I think the idea of Brigadoon is actually pretty interesting. Mm. Um, you know, for the listeners that don't know that that myth, it's, it's this idea of a, of a place frozen in time where very few get to experience it. But those that come in and experience it, can only stay if they care about everyone else in the village. Mm. And I feel like that is what made 2018 and, and 2019 pretty special is that in those interactions we had, I, I think we all recognized as soldiers from opposing armies that we were in this together and that for the North Koreans, if they were successful in Panmunjom, it was good for their president. Mm. For UNC, if we could be successful in Panmunjom, it was good for our leaders and for our nation. And as the human interaction increased, we could just, we, we had a sense that they were more willing to take risk to try to be successful. And so, so it, was, it was absolutely a special time. Mm. And uh, I'm incredibly grateful that I was able to share that with, with the soldiers that I served with in Panmunjom. Now, you, you finished out your time there in June uh, 2020. But as you pointed out, with the uh, the swine fever and COVID, you know, the, there really wasn't much going on there. There wasn't the, the space or the possibility for interactions. Those last few months, as you were, you know, approaching the end of your your command, did you did you feel a sense of sadness or a sense of, um, you know, uh, there's not much happening at the moment, and uh, I might not see anything else before I leave here? How did you feel about that? Yeah. I it, I certainly wished that I'd been able to continue the interactions that we had in the, in the first year. You know, I, I would have, I honestly would have enjoyed the opportunity to, 
to say goodbye to my counterpart yeah. and to introduce my successor in mm. command to, to what was now his counterpart. Right. Uh, and we, and we went up to the border and, and tried to make that happen and they saw us and, and they know, but it was also at the height of COVID-19. So right. the expectation for a real engagement wasn't high. So do I wish I'd been able to have more interactions and, and a final interaction for me hmm. and to hand that relationship over? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wish we could have done that. Uh, but I'm also grateful for for what we were able to accomplish and what UNC was able to show as possible in Panmunjom. Uh, what's your hope for the future of the JSA and uh, the DMZ? Yeah, so I, I recently saw that uh, that they're starting to slowly reopen the, the orientations. And so so my, my first hope is that, you know, the citizens of Korea and, you know, citizens from all around the world that come to visit the Korean Peninsula can go to Panmunjom and, and learn about the history of the war, about the armistice, yeah. uh, and about what has happened in Panmunjom, because it's, I think it's some tremendous history. Uh, and I think it's very hopeful. My hope for the future, you know, any soldier hopes that eventually, you know, a war can be over. So, right. so someday when, when the policymakers and the generals decided it's time, it's time to be over, that'll be good. Right. And no soldier wishes for a continuation of war. So, yeah. so I hope that someday the JSA is a, a historical place that people can look back on, on what the battalion did and secured on behalf of the United Nations command for, for over 70 years. Yeah, I always think of that, or I'm reminded of that line from Apocalypse Now, someday this war is going to end. <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah. That's the truth. And, uh, and I'll be glad when it does. I, I, hope, I hope I have the opportunity to come back and visit when that happens. That would be a very special trip. And you could certainly, uh, that would be fun to go around the northern side too and check it out. It would. It would. I'd love to track my counterpart down someday. Well, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Morrow, thank you very much for being on the NK News podcast today. It's been great talking to you and hearing about your experiences there from 2018 to 2020. Thanks, Jacko. It's been a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. If you have feedback, questions, or future guest suggestions, send them by email to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our new post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. <laughs>